Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 43, Revelation, Grace to You and Peace. And in this episode, we are finally ready to dive right into the opening few verses of the book of Revelation. I'm really excited about what John is doing here. He is introducing a lot of themes to us that are going to be really, really important to understand as the book unfolds. And so I want you to hold on. I want you to grab a Bible if you're free to do that. As we begin to look at the first five verses, start addressing some of the themes, again, referencing what the book of Revelation itself is doing and what John hopes it will do to us, not just to pass on content, but for us truly to be transformed into the image of Christ as his followers, those who want to become like him. What John presents us with in these first few verses is going to be central and understanding who it is that we worship and who it is that we are supposed to become as followers of Jesus. And so I'm really excited. Let's jump right in. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read the first five verses of Revelation chapter 1. Here's what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And we'll go ahead for this introductory episode and just stop at that halfway point in verse 5 of chapter 1. A couple observations I'd like to make as we get started. The first is that you'll notice through the first two verses of Revelation 1, Um, there's actually this little chain of command. And we're told that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is an unveiling of who Jesus is. This is a revealing of him. And there are lots of things about him that we are going to see as the book goes forward. And so I believe it's very fitting that John begins his, um, his letter in this way, that this is in fact a revelation of Jesus Christ. We are going to be able to see Jesus in all of his goodness, all of his glory, all of his magnificence. And that's actually what the book of Revelation is intended to teach us. But we're told that God gave Jesus this revelation. He, God gave it to him to show to his servants, that's people like us, the things that must soon take place. And he did it by making it known, by sending his angel to his servant, John. And so what you have here in this very first verse of Revelation 1 is that you have God has a message that he has revealed to Jesus and through Jesus, which then is communicated to John and John's servants from an angel. And all through the book, you're going to hear references to, then an angel did this, and then an angel said that, and then an angel did this, and an angel did that. Angels ultimately are messengers. They are simply here to communicate messages from God to people. They're often referred to as mediators throughout the Old Testament, and we see numerous examples of that. But ultimately, what we are here to do is to receive as John, his servants, that's us, something that his servant John also 
received. And in verse 2 of Revelation 1, it describes John for us in this way, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And those two ideas, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, is going to be repeated at random places throughout the book of Revelation. Now, they're going to be repeated randomly, randomly maybe to us, but they're not random to John. In fact, John's going to use that description of himself more than one other time in the book and will even refer to other servants of God who find themselves in similar situations as John does as a result of the testimony of Jesus Christ and bearing witness to the word of God. So this is really how the book begins, and we'll find out some more biography of John himself later on in the chapter. I'll save that for another week. Let's just move right on. Now, last week I referenced and I spent some time in the weeks before on the podcast simply reading the book to you. And some of you may have taken me up on that challenge. Some of you may not have. I would always encourage you to listen to the book read aloud. And I know there are better versions of it read aloud than the one I gave you, but you can at least start with that if you'd like or find an audio Bible that does a better job. But either way, listening to the word read aloud, I think has profound effects on us as people. And you remember I referenced that the reason why I was reading it was because I wanted to receive a blessing, which we are promised in Revelation 1-3, but also that those who hear the words will receive a blessing. But something that I read, but I didn't really focus in on, was that in Revelation 1-3, it also says, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, as I shared in the very introductory episode to the Revelation series, the entire book of Revelation is the letter that is circulated to all seven churches. Um, It's not just each individual portion of verses addressed to each church that you can read about in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, and it's not merely what we read about in just those first few chapters. Um, It's the whole book, Revelation 1 to 22, that each of the seven churches received. And so the church at Laodicea could read the words to the church at Smyrna and Ephesus could hear what Pergamum was dealing with and and so on. So what this means then is that the entire book is what John intends for the hearers of Revelation to keep. And he uses that verb, keep. Um, You know, I may say a blessing in my service at various times in our church service, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. You know, it's, it's hold you in his hand. It is to be able to carry out the things that God intends to do for you in order for you to effectively follow him. And so John is exhorting us to keep these words, you know, on, on my Bible, as it's open right now, um, actually the, the end of the book of Jude shows up on the same page as the first chapter in Revelation. And it even ends with a doxology, the book of Jude does. And it says in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. It's a beautiful doxology. It's a beautiful way to close a a worship service, and we oftentimes do close our worship services by reading Jude um, 24 and and 25. But here we are talking about to the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. So there's something that God is doing and there's something that John is encouraging us to do. Now, the way some people interpret Revelation though, 
you would think that what John said was, and blessed are those who hear and who believe what is written in it, for the time is near. You see, some interpreters of and interpretations of Revelation assume that through vast portions of the contents described in this book, the Christians will be mysteriously absent, having been taken away from the world before these terrible events take place. When asked then what the point is of recording all of these terrible things for Christians, like why would Christians then need to know that all of these things are going to happen, the answer given is something like, so that they'll be confident that in the end, God really will deal with all the injustice in the world. And that's about it. In other words, the things written in Revelation are recorded only so that we will believe them, so that we will accept that they are going to happen. But in reality, they have no practical application to our lives. In other words, there's nothing in that record of events for me to keep, except, of course, for a few exhortations that we read about in chapters 2 and 3. Now, maybe you hold to that kind of a perspective. Maybe that idea is part of why the revelation is confusing to you. I don't really know your story or your background, but you might be able to tell by the way I'm describing this view that I do not hold to it, and you would be correct. It'll become clear as we go my many reasons for rejecting it, but here at the beginning, I just want to draw your attention to the way John introduces his hearers to the contents of his book. And as we go, I'll show you how he presents very real alternatives to the belief system he opens his book with. And so one of the first things that you and I need to be clear on is that revelation is addressed to the church. We're told in verse four, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And we will get to this specific list of seven. Seven in the book of Revelation is a symbolic number. We're going to look at that in just a moment, and we will see numerous examples of the idea behind seven. Seven is simply a reference to completion. It is something to a full picture, a totality, a perfect whole, if you will. And so there were actually seven churches in seven various cities sprinkled throughout Asia Minor where John, from his location on the island of Patmos, would have arrived first on the shore and been able to travel to Ephesus. He would have then gone to Smyrna next, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and back to Laodicea, forming almost a completed circle through the region of Asia Minor. The reason why he's doing that, of course, is because these churches were in existence, but the message given to all of these churches is going to cover all of the themes across all time and across all geographical locations that churches all across the world and all through time since the days of Jesus will deal with the very kinds of things that are being addressed in each of the letters to each of these churches. And so it's important to recognize that Revelation as a book is addressed to the churches. It's not addressed to Babylon or to the world. Now, this observation, while seemingly obvious, is actually often missed. It's missed when people start discussing the nature of what Revelation is and therefore what its contents, who they are directed toward. 
Now, if I tell you that the book of Revelation is addressed to the church, then I'm going to have to point out to you that we're going to come back to this time and time and time again throughout the series. But Revelation is, of course, filled with judgment, yes, and how God plans to deal with all the injustice in the world, yes. But as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins with the household of God. And the church's willingness to receive truth into itself before being concerned with communicating that truth to the outside world will determine whether or not our calling as lampstands will in fact honor Christ and whether or not our witness will have any real and lasting impact in the world. So Revelation is addressed to the church. If you find yourself as a follower of Jesus, you resemble or you, you, you worship in a space of other believers who claim to be following Jesus, this book is written to you. It is written for you and it is written to you. It is not written to the world. And that's important to understand because we're going to have to swallow some pride as we listen to the words John is given, giving as we walk through the book. And I will explain why that's the case in just a moment. Now, as we continue on in verse 4, we find that John opens this letter the way Paul opens many of his letters um, sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. It's a greeting in the name of our God, who in Revelation 1, John identifies as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oftentimes when Paul will write, he'll say something like, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will oftentimes address the churches in the name of this God. And John is simply doing something very similar. Um, if you remember to the end of Matthew 28, when Jesus gives the great commission and he tells his disciples to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, you are to baptize those followers of mine in the name singular, one God in three persons. So we need to know God as he is revealed to us. And it is from this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we are receiving grace and peace. Now you might ask, well, okay, what's the value of introducing the letter in the name of our three-person God? Well, that's a great question, and I would answer it by saying this, that to know God as he is revealed is to become like him. This is the point of being made in his image, that we would come to rightly know who he is and how he acts in the world and to desire to be conformed to his image, to reflect him in the way that we rule in the world. We worship him rightly when we produce a likeness of who he is. In fact, you might even say that imitating him or rightly imaging him is the way we glorify him. Now, at this point, it may actually help you to re-listen to episode five, Made in the Image of God, episode five in this very podcast, where I spend an entire episode talking solely about what being made in God's image means. And I guess I could go ahead and tell you that at this point, I do actually plan all through this Revelation series to draw your attention back to many episodes that we've already explored in this podcast. 
And the reason is because redemption's story is going somewhere. The themes addressed at the beginning of the Bible story find their fullest expression at the end. We spent many weeks looking at the opening pages of the Bible, and now at the end of the Bible, we find those same themes resurfacing. And so if you want to get the most out of this Revelation series, you will want to familiarize yourself with many of the Bible's main themes, which again was the point of many of those first 17, 18 episodes of the podcast where we spent all of our time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so again, in fashion similarly to Paul, John says, grace to you and peace from this God. Now, as I shared in episode six, whose likeness is this? There were competing visions in Jesus's day regarding just who it was who could grant peace to its citizens. Rome promised its citizens plenty of peace. It was known as the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. And Rome produced it through military conquest and a strong economy asking in exchange for allegiance to its system of government embodied in its Caesar and loyalty to Rome's way of life. Now, as we'll see all through the book of Revelation, Rome embodies an ideology that is as old as Babylon and is still alive and well today. Again, we discussed this worldview in episode number four, a competing creation narrative. And this worldview is violence saves War brings peace and might makes right. This is Babylon's ideology. It's what drives the kingdom Babylon is building. It's the story of the victory of order over chaos by means of violence. It's the ideology of conquest. The gods favor those who conquer, and therefore whoever conquers must have the favor of the gods. It's a belief system. It's a way of finding your place in the world, an underlying current about what it means to rule and how best to accomplish your will in society. Now, John is speaking to the churches, rooting the peace that they experience in their working of their Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's doing so for one very fundamental reason to remind us how real peace has come about and to encourage us to find not only our identity there, but to allow that definition of peace to shape the way we choose to live and choose to rule. Now, one of the best features of the book of Revelation is its ability to lift us all, as we follow John, out of the everyday run-of-the-mill experiences that are so common to all of us and into the perspective of heaven to give us God's view of earth's activities and to allow us to experience our world as God sees it. Now, all through the Old Testament, the Bible clues us in to the sinful actions of man with the words, it seemed good to them, or everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a way of looking at the world, seeing yourself and your actions as the hero of the story and then feeling justified in acting out that story. 
Well, it really shouldn't surprise us then to recognize that mankind's view of himself and his actions isn't always shared by God. And the Old Testament's most common way to highlight that difference is with the simple yet constantly repeated refrain, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we as the readers of that Old Testament are constantly encouraged to ask, why is the Lord seeing those actions as evil? And what at root is driving the people to see them as good? Over and over and over, we must ask this question. You might even go ahead and re-listen to episode 10, A Garden in Eden, for a discussion of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then go re-listen to episode 16, The Fall of Man, and episode 17, What Went Wrong, to better understand why man and God define good and evil so differently. You see, these themes are all interconnected and they are all woven together. And as a reader of Revelation, we bring our knowledge of all of these themes to bear on what we read here. Why? Because this is the capstone book of the entire Bible. But I do need to kind of make a caveat here because I have seen this happen and I don't want you to fall into this trap. It will certainly not do It will not work today, as is, I'm sorry, but a very common practice in our current time. To read the stories of Israel's waywardness or their idolatry or their sinful practices sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament and just shake our heads in disbelief that they could have been so stubborn, so faithless, and so sinful. You see, implied in our head shaking is the idea that we see things so much more clearly. That if we had been there, we wouldn't have acted in the same kinds of stubborn, faithless, and sinful ways. Also implied in our head shaking is the idea that nothing about the way we currently live today could warrant the same type of rebukes that Israel received. Well, you might want to hold on to your hats then because John is fully prepared to show us that sin is a whole lot sneakier than you or I realize. That idolatry is never quite so blatant and obvious as we might believe. That ideologies and value systems rooted in our hearts might not actually reflect the heart and character of our God as much as we'd like to imagine. And one of the most profound ways that Revelation's vision accomplishes this is by speaking of dragons and beasts and other fantastical creatures. Remember, this is an apocalyptic vision. It is an unveiling, a pulling back of the curtain to allow us to see the world the way God does, complete with the grotesque images that accurately reflect the brokenness and destructiveness of sin in God's once good world. And so if for just a moment we fast forward into Revelation 16 for just a moment, we'll find something really illuminating. John identifies for us what he calls three unclean spirits, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And then in chapter 17, the way he describes the beast is as the one who was, 
and is not, and is to come. Now, I want you to contrast this for just a moment with the way that John introduces us to the Father in chapter 1, verse 4. The one who is, and who was, and who is to come. Now, these two descriptions sound nearly identical, except for the clear distinction between the one who is and the one who is not. But both God the Father and the beast have an image as well as one who speaks on behalf of the image. One who speaks through truth, the other who speaks through deceit. Revelation then presents us, presents the church with two distinct three-person gods who desire worshipers and followers. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit versus dragon, beast, and false prophet. Two different three-person gods vying for our allegiance. Two different three-person gods embodying two different ideologies and value systems for how best to build a kingdom in this world. Two different three-person gods embodying different ideologies for what a kingdom is in the first place. Two competing ideologies for how humanity ought best to rule the world and how best to conquer and to be victorious. In other words, Revelation's message is all about kingdoms. It's about ruling and it's about being human. It's about how best to establish peace in the world and what real peace actually is. It's about who really is on the throne and who is actually in control of things on the earth. It's about how God intends to replace the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so God the Father is understood to be the eternal one, past, present, and future. You might consider re-listening to episode 8, Introducing the Lord for a refresher on the one who revealed himself to Moses as I am who I am or I will be who I will be and what it is in response to that the Lord first chooses to reveal himself in this way. You see, we all need to be reminded of God's faithfulness and goodness in our present circumstances or situations. And the hardest place of any follower is to remember that God is in complete control of our present not just our past or our future. And so when John describes him, notice that he describes him in the present first. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. When he describes the beast in chapter 17, he describes him as who was and is not and is to come. And so he puts this front and center for us to remember he is in charge of our present situation, present circumstances, present struggles, present temptations to compromise, present persecutions, present whatever. And trust me, we'll have plenty to see that is going on in the present in John's day. And I'm quite certain if you are half awake, you would notice that there is a lot we need to be concentrated on God for in our present situation. God's faithfulness is consistent in the present, just like it was in the past, just like it will be for the future. He is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. Now, we are also told in verse 4 that the churches are greeted in the name of the Spirit, or as John describes it, the seven spirits who were before his throne. Now, introducing the presence of thrones or a throne right at the beginning of Revelation helps remind us once again that this book is about who ultimately rules the world. Labeling the spirit in this way is a special feature of apocalyptic language. And as we will see, it refers primarily to the fullness of God's power sent out into all the earth. The seven spirits, speaking again with seven of the complete all-seeing nature of the spirit's power, comes actually from two passages in the Old Testament, from Isaiah 11 and from Zechariah 4. And we will reference both and take the time to read through both in future episodes. But I might add here as well that not only do I intend to read and remind you to go back and re-listen to portions of the podcast that took place in the Old Testament, but the book of Revelation itself will rely heavily upon your knowledge of the Old Testament, and so we will be referring to it quite regularly as we go. And then, of course, the final one that John decides to greet us and, and offer us grace and peace in the name of is, of course, Jesus Himself, whom John describes as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, these three descriptions of Jesus highlight for us three central features in the book as a whole. The faithful witness. Jesus himself was that witness, even unto death, and as such has been made Lord of all. That's the pattern. Witness unto death raised to new life and made ruler. This is the pattern that followers of Jesus will be exhorted to imitate in their role as his witnesses. The very commission he gave his disciples in Acts 1.8 and one of the main themes of the book of Revelation. This is who our God is. He's the everlasting one the one who sees and knows all things by the power of his spirit and whose son faithfully witnesses to the goodness of his father is put to death for it, but is raised to new life and seated in the place of power. And those who worship this God, those who receive grace and peace from this God will seek to produce a likeness of who he is in their own lives. They will seek to image him in the way that they rule how they believe it best to bring in a kingdom and to which ideals they believe best embody the ones embraced by this God. Who they seek to become in their own lives reflects which God they believe they are imaging. And they will either embody the ideals of God or they will embody the ideals of the dragon. You see, we worship either God or the dragon depending upon whose ideals most grip our hearts. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or for restoration. Another way to put that is that we become like what we worship. This is how Jesus can say in quoting Isaiah, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
You see, many of the people of Jesus's day had mastered outward display and religious talk, but inwardly they were full of death and rottenness. Strangely enough, the beast from the land, John tells us in Revelation 13, looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. It has the appearance of something resembling Jesus, but when it opens its mouth, you hear the death and lies and destructiveness that pour out of it. And this is the reason that Revelation is addressed to the churches. It's addressed to the churches because only the presence of the Spirit is powerful enough to break through the hard-hearted exterior and religious veneer that can comfortably exist in the lives of those who profess Jesus with their lips and who honor him with their speech, but whose deepest held desires align themselves more closely with the beast than they do with their God. You see, the churches are called to bear witness to the light. But lest they forget that they too need the light of truth shined into their hearts, it is the churches who position themselves before their God for judgment first. And then as he cleanses, renews, and purifies us, we find that the grace and mercy God has given to us will fuel the grace and mercy we are capable of extending to others. Revelation was written to the churches. It starts with the churches, which are both known by Christ and loved by Christ. And so the majority of this Revelation series, I'm just going to be honest with you, is going to be extremely pastoral. I plan to walk you through in your own life what it might really mean to be a witness for Jesus in the world. What obstacles in your own life might really be preventing you from shining light in a dark world and how truly following Jesus can set you free from things you simply assumed would always rule your life. Jesus was a shepherd. John is writing as a pastor. I plan to walk you through this book as a shepherd pastor. With my eyes on Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And with God as our creator, the spirit as our helper, and Jesus as our savior, we will see God's world through God's lens and be set free from the deceit of the enemy. That is what I hope to accomplish in this series. That is what I hope you will join me with as we walk through the book together. I would love to hear from you if you have questions as we go. I am a pastor and would love to be a pastor to you if at any time you sense I need someone to talk to. I would love that. You can follow me on Instagram at the Unbinding the Bible podcast. You can email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. I will provide links for those things at the bottom of my show notes of each of these episodes if you would like to do that. 
Also, if you happen to be listening to this on a podcast app or even on your desktop, if you would leave me a rating or a review, this really does help to gain some traction on Google. When people search for podcasts, they might be able to locate mine if I can, in fact, get a few more reviews and ratings. Again, thank you for those who are continuing to support the podcast. Your generosity is incredibly, um, it's very humbling, to be honest with you, and I'm really thankful for that. Thankful for those that are continuing to seek me out with questions of your own. Let's dive into this together. Let's explore what it means to serve Jesus and worship him really. And let's be prepared to have him deal with our own hearts and our own lives. And then to set us loose to love a world the way he loves us. Talk to you next time.